And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, February 28th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this presidential rank award winner keeps a lot of things running smoothly for the Air Force. Plus, the Transportation Department maps out its next five years of research. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, federal scientists have plenty to do under the Biden administration's infrastructure and environmental spending plans. A recent survey from the Union of Concerned Scientists says short staffing is leading to burnout in six agencies anyhow. Respondents see little change on persistent issues like censorship and supervisor pushback. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the lead analyst of the survey, Anita Desican. There were times when people said, we don't have enough staff to do that work. We're getting burned out. We had a, we had a question about asking, do you feel burned out in the last two years? Most people are saying yes, and we asked the cause. And the cause by far and away was lack of staff capacity, even beat out stressors related to the pandemic. We asked the top barrier for science-based decision-making was also lack of staff capacity. It was coming up in so many different ways and so many different angles. People would say things like, I'm afraid that I might make mistakes because I'm, I'm getting burnt out doing the job of multiple people right now, you know? So it's, it's that sort of level. So there's an interesting kind of connection, right, between having enough staff to do the good science. It's almost an issue you might not think immediately comes into the scientific integrity umbrella, but it's definitely related. And we at UCS have actually looked at that issue in the past. We looked at after the Trump administration ended in January 2021, we took a deep dive into capacity and we were finding like hundreds, even thousands of scientists leaving particular agencies. And I'll take a deeper focus on the EPA in particular. We were seeing, I think it was something like 200 scientists every year from 2016 to 2020 in that particular analysis were leaving. And, um, you know, that tells you something. That's a lack of knowledge, you know, institutional knowledge that's leaving. That's a lack of people who aren't able to provide that good science and aren't being hired back, right? And and the Biden administration has been trying to do that hiring, but it's problematic. And the other big focus here, I think, has just been where the spending has been going. We have seen some pretty big signature pieces of legislation cross the finish line, the Inflation Reduction Act, the various infrastructure spending bills, the Chips and Science Act. This seems like this also indicates a significant workload for the federal scientists going forward. Right now, as you mentioned, there's so many different interesting laws that the federal agencies are trying to implement, like the Inflation Reduction Act, which has a lot of, like, for instance, climate measures and environmental justice measures. Um, and EPA, sci- EPA, the EPA's largest union um, is actually right now lobbying Congress and saying, we literally do not have enough staff to do this, right? The staff levels haven't changed since the 1980s. You're asking us to do more with less. And the money from these different types of legislative initiatives, they're line items for certain types of activities, but it's not, you know, here's a chunk of money to hire people, right? So there's a lack of staff to do the good work right now. And that's something, again, we saw over and over in our survey. Yeah, I don't know if this is something you're able to speak to across the six agencies that you guys surveyed. Is there a particular section or agency where the hiring 
and staffing needs are particularly acute? Is there one agency where you guys have seen, based on the survey results, a particular hollowing out of the federal scientific workforce? Yeah, I gave the EPA as an example here because I think that was one where we saw that particular data really kind of showing the lack of staff capacity. But I, I wouldn't say that it's just the EPA. It seems to be affecting a lot of different agencies in a lot of different ways. It's I don't want to stress and paint an image where these hiring processes aren't in place, you know, and and that they're not being pulled in like they're they are. And we were seeing some aspects in the survey of people saying like, oh, we're actually hiring more and we're hiring people who represent the country's diversity and the other people saying maybe we're not doing that as much. So there were opinions about the idea of hiring kind of increasing during this time period. But the feeling that me and my colleagues were getting was that it just wasn't enough across the board, right? There there really still continues to be not enough people to do all this work. And it's it's stressing, you know, our federal scientists out. We don't want them stressed out. We want them to be in a place where they're able to write these reports, analyze these data, and do all these things to protect all of our public health and environment. One thing that I noted kind of in the the challenges section of the report, one thing that seems like it has not changed in terms of the responses, at least, is this sense of mixed perceptions about the degree of censorship that happens at their agencies. This just seems to be an issue that seems to happen across administrations and just seems to be a longstanding concern. Can you tell me more about how respondents felt about the issue of censorship? Yeah, no, thanks for asking this question, because this is one where we were pretty surprised about, honestly, when we were doing these analyses. So I'll first state that most scientists don't feel like they're being censored. Even when we asked this question during the Trump administration, the vast majority of scientists say, I'm I'm able to do my work well. But there's a certain percentage, it varies by agency, but let's say around 20%-ish of scientists are saying, I am experiencing this type of censorship. And we asked a couple of different questions to, you know, uh, to figure out what censorship is. So we asked questions about, are you asked or told to omit words from a scientific product? Are you asked to or told to avoid topics that may be politically contentious? We asked the new questions related to, can you feel like you can do advocacy on your own time? We asked it in a couple of different ways, you know, to kind of get at direct censorship and indirect censorship. It was still the same persistent around 20%-ish of the scientists we surveyed saying the same thing. And we saw the same kind of persistent numbers in, in the 2018 survey, too, that we did. Right now, our best hypothesis is that it's occurring on these within an individual office or within an individual department, right? It may be that you may have a certain manager who's feeling, okay, I want to make sure that my scientists are are saying the right things, right? And they might enact a certain form of censorship, while the people who are higher up may not be doing that, right? So it it can vary on these levels, but what it's indicating is that some offices, this stuff isn't occurring at all, and some offices, it really is. And there needs to be a thought through of this as the scientific integrity framework is being 
implemented, right? Like some people really, really feel like they can't use certain words or they can't say certain things in their scientific products or when speaking to the public, right? And that's that's problematic. We want them to be able to use these these great science terms like climate change and whatnot. You have to use that language in order to communicate the science. And and so this is continues to be an ongoing issue. It's it's not a common issue, but it's definitely a persistent one. And we don't want any scientists to be feeling this way along, let alone the over 100 scientists who are reporting this. Anita Desikan, Senior Analyst for the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Transportation Department maps out its next five years of research. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Transportation Department has a lot of goals for its latest five-year research, development, and technology plan, including a transportation system that's safer, greener, and more resilient than the one we have now. For highlights, we turn to DOT's Deputy Assistant Secretary and Chief Science Officer, Dr. Robert Hampshire. Dr. Hampshire, good to have you with us. Great to be here today. Thanks, Tom. And I'm struck in reading this, it's almost a 100-page plan, that the complexity of the transportation system, the different modes and uh, the different modes within the modes, electric, gas, and so forth, and then the chain from the consumer, the people that travel, all the way back to manufacturers. How do you incorporate all of this into any kind of a cogent plan? (laughs) That's a great point. Thanks, Tom. You know, part of what the department's doing is really – we want to make sure we have the safest, most efficient transportation system in the world that particularly improves the lives of the traveling public. You know, and it is a complex system, but it's one that really, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that the communities from rural to urban in America really is competitive and, and, and thriving. And I was also struck by the list. There's about eight different components of transportation. Some of them oversee the different modes or regulate the different modes, but they all have research arms. And that's where that science and technology piece roughly takes place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So part of what we're doing is as we're implementing the bipartisan infrastructure law, you know, particularly as we're moving towards the, you know, building a, a better America, we're implementing now you know, to improve the lives of Americans, but also we need a plan for the future. And so, and, and a plan to help implement that, those goals. And so that's where the research plan uh, comes in. It's really like a roadmap to really make sure that, you know, we're answering the questions, providing the research to, so we can implement and have results today. And maybe highlight what the overarching goals for all of the modes are, because each mode has its millions of sub-issues that it's got to deal with. But somehow, right. for the DOT yeah. level, it all adds up to a, a set of about, what, five or six basic goals. No, that's right. There's, there's a big plan, but at the heart of it, one of the key goals is safety. One of the forefront is making sure that the transportation system across all the modes 
are, are safe. But in addition to safety, you know, one of the other key priorities are about economic competitiveness, making sure that, you know, us as a, as a nation are, is competitive globally, but also f- fighting the climate crisis and, and resiliency of our infrastructure. So, and also making sure that the system works for more people. That's the equity piece from rural to urban to everyone in between, making sure that the transportation system works for more Americans. And there was one line in there where you stated that people locally should have more say over the decisions that are made by their transportation or local officials, whoever those might be. And how do you reconcile that with a national federal plan with these eight agencies? And yet, you know, like in the county I live in, they just unilaterally are narrowing roads to make room for bicycles that never appear and making all the motorists really mad. That kind of thing that gets down to my street sometimes or my traffic light. No, absolutely. And the it's a system where we have at the federal level, we provide guidance and, and leadership, but ultimately uh, in the bipartisan infrastructure law and the way the transportation system works, a lot of the decision at the state and local level. And so with this research plan, we held stakeholder engagement sessions. We talked to professionals from you know who work at the state level, local, uh, and, and federal. So really, it is about input from everyone across the whole transportation system. And the infrastructure bill, of course, gave a couple of hundred billion dollars specifically to roads, bridges, rail systems, and so forth. And is the research that is required to be able to spend that in the most wise way possible? Absolutely. So part of it is making sure, you know, what we're implementing now, they're making sure that those funds are used the most effectively uh, now. But we want to make sure that we're building a transportation system for the future. One that, you know, because when you build a bridge, it lasts for a long time. And so we want to make sure that's done using the best practices, using making sure that uh, the most effective data, the uh, most current approaches. So absolutely is about building and supporting infrastructure now, but making sure it's ready uh, for the future as well. And briefly, the research specifically that will be done, and we'll talk about what some of those topics might be, but is that done by the agencies themselves in federal laboratories? Those exist, and some of the transportation-related research takes place out of DOT, NASA, Homeland Security, or is it mostly through grants to academic and think tanks and those types of groups? I'd say a little bit of all of the above. Most of the research uh, that's done by the in the bipartisan infrastructure law, a lot of the funding, like I said, goes to the states, and the states you know provide research. But us as a federal department of transportation as well, we you know we do some of that work internally, but much of it through contractors, through academics through researchers across the nation. We're speaking with Dr. Robert Hampshire. He's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology and the Chief Science Officer at the Transportation Department. And give us some examples of specific types of research that need to be done. I know one of the priorities is a more resilient transportation system that can recover from disasters. And, you know, frequently a given disaster can have multimodal effects. Yes, that's right. Really part of, like I said, safety is one of our number one priorities. So certainly uh, research that makes roads and drivers uh, a safer. One approach is we unveiled something called the National Roadway Safety Strategy, which really is an all-hands-on-deck approach to make sure that both roads, vehicles are safe, but also people are driving at safe speeds, making sure that something called post-crash care 
So after a crash does happen, making sure that, you know, ambulatory services and, and so forth are, are using the greatest, latest techniques to make sure people survive those crashes. And so specifically some of the roadway, national roadway safety strategy is a really specific framing for a lot of the not just research, but action that we're taking uh, here today. And up in the air, there's been some transportation kind of issues lately that have affected the country. Some of them relate to modernization of the or by the FAA of its own systems. And the next gen seems to be ever out there in the future for completion. And the NOTAM system, which nobody ever heard of till it failed, uh, it has a 10-year modernization plan and no real but that's different from research. That's just getting agency activities of long standing into gear. So how does that relate? I mean, what are the next research areas, say, for air transportation? That's a great question. You know, our national airspace uh, and our system, you know, is one of the, in some ways, the envy of the world, some of the safety record. And so that's something we, that's a department we want to continue to invest in and, and focus on when it comes to safety. Uh, but some of the new emerging issues are things in something called advanced air mobility. That's like uh, unmanned aerial systems, something called vertical takeoff and lift systems. These are, you know, small planes, electric, or even, you know, uh, the future has, you know, even autonomous aviation. So these are things, you know, in the future, but really the research plan contemplates, you know, trying to lay out a framework for those uh, systems. So yeah, uh, UAS, that's, unmanned aerial systems and advanced air mobility are some of the new emerging topics in aviation. In that case, then, DOT has to work a lot with NASA because a lot of the research falls on them. There's a lot of interplay between NASA and FAA. Absolutely. It's a all-of-government approach when it comes to some of those newer aviation topics. Uh, So we we do collaborate and and, uh, actively with other interagency partners well, maybe and, this time, and industry. I was thinking maybe this time around we really will see everybody have a helicopter, but that idea goes back to <laughs> about 1950, I think. But maybe this time, you know, drunks in helicopters, that'll be fun. And what about rail? Again, that's, of course, we had that crash, you know, that has turned people to the idea of rail safety. And here again, there's a lot of systems that are known that can help rail safety, but They've been expensive and slow to get implemented on every mile of track in the country. Yeah, the the research plan also, you know, has a, a rail. That's one of the our key modes. Again, leading with safety. We, we know that we need to continue to invest and in, improve in, in safety in rail, and so that's that's one thing that's in the plan. But there are systems that we've that are being implemented uh, that really something called positive train control. You know, right. systems that really use system like GPS to make sure that trains keep a safe distance from each other or that they can stop and break appropriately. So those those kind of uh, systems are contemplated in, in this research plan as well. And by the way, a lot of the track in the United States is in terrible condition. That's primarily the railroad's own financial responsibilities. Is there anything in the infrastructure bill that helps the just the basic infrastructure of rail, the tracks and bridges that trains go on? Yeah, so the infrastructure bill really did invest in, in rail in big ways as both on the passenger side and also the freight side. And so there are investments there that are, you know, that our Federal Railroad Administration is, is taking on as a mode. And in the research at, in the department, we certainly are supporting some of those key priorities led with the rail safety. And so what does the just give us uh, the visionary standpoint view of what the transportation system would look like 
given the research agenda to try to get the nation there? No, this is, uh, you know, I use a metaphor where, you know, we used to think that all the planets re- revolved around the Earth, right? And so we had everyone who revolved around us. We were in the center, you know, and, and but then we learned that, you know, actually, no, the Earth revolves around the sun. And so it's a similar thing here. We want the transportation system to, to revolve around people. We want not just people have to revolve around their their mode, their car, their, their, their rail, their micro scooter. The, it should be centered around people and communities. And then all the other modes and ways to travel revolve around uh, the people. And so that's really the, the vision here is one that's a people-centered uh, a vision that that really is something called a system of systems. We view, you know, ways of getting around and it, it could, you know, and we want to make that as, as effective and as efficient and safe for as many people in the traveling public as possible. And maybe just a final observation. There is so much difference between people and the modes and the way they get around in rural areas versus urban. Yeah. It seems like the place for the most progress to happen quickly is in the really dense areas more so than in the one traffic light town out there in the middle of North Dakota. Well, you know, in the in the plan or in the research plan and also in the bipartisan infrastructure law, there's really terrific programs for rural transportation. That's across all modes from a rural aviation at small airports all the way through travel and access to hospitals in rural areas. We know access to groceries and food are a big deal in rural areas. And so the department is working on that uh, with our partners in the local and, and states. And so rural uh, transportation actually is a, a really big deal and something that we uh, certainly care deeply about as we're trying to build out a safe, economically competitive transportation system. But teleportation still not here <laughs> yet, huh? Uh, not quite yet. You know, uh, that's we're working on it. All right. Well, we won't be beamed up quite so soon. Dr. Robert Hampshire is Deputy Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology and the Chief Science Officer at the Transportation Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview together with a link to the plan at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive wherever you drive or fly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, why contractors need to focus on the brass tacks. But first, this presidential rank award winner helps keep a lot of things running smoothly for the Air Force. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. She's done just about everything you can do as a civilian working for the Air Force, now called the Department of the Air Force because it includes the Space Force, installations, energy, housing, safety, and health. Now she's Director of Staff at Air Force Headquarters and oversees, well, just a lot of things. And she was recently named to a Presidential Rank Award. Jennifer Miller joins me now. Ms. Miller, good to have you on. Thank you very much. Good to be on. And what exactly does the chief of staff for the Air Force, you don't oversee uniforms, I'm presuming, what do you actually do? 
we have long had a chief of staff, of course, of each of the services, and those are our four stars, the chief of staff of the Space Force now with General Saltzman and the chief of staff of the Air Force with General Brown. And they each had a director of staff, and that person was responsible for running all of the staff within the Air Force and the Space Force. So when our new secretary, Secretary Kendall, came on, he wanted to create a director of staff for the department, so for the secretariat. And the primary focus of that would be to integrate both the Space Force and the Air Force so that every time we have something owing to the Hill or to the Secretary of Defense, it would be an integrated position that would reflect both the Space and the Air Force positions to wrap up into the one department of the Air Force. So it's really a reflection and a representation of the two services existing under one department. Got it. And the topics or the facilities or the functions that you oversee the staff of, they do procurement, installation work, that kind of thing? That's right. So we have, of course, the secretary and the undersecretary, and then we have the political appointees who are the assistant secretaries. And they help and run the policy for the department, both for the Air Force and the Space Force. So my team manages all the inquiries that come over from the Hill, all the requirements that come out through the Secretary of Defense's office, and then helps manage the staff for everything from acquisition to manpower and reserve affairs, installations, environment, and energy, space acquisition, so kind of all of the assistant secretary departments, diversity and inclusion. So we have a broad reach of pretty much every policy-related matter that the secretary is interested in. And then we also have the protocol team, and then we have a team on the director of staff called the exec sec, which runs all of the taskers that come through, over a 1,000 taskers a year just in the department that run through our tasking system to make sure we're responsive to the public and to the Hill and to the secretary of defense. It's a complicated apparatus, but yet it sounds like then that you have influence or have some way of helping not just the back office functions or the tail of the Air Force, but ultimately the elements that fly and orbit and shoot kinetic things. Right. And that's one of the neatest parts about the job is that I meet with the secretary and the undersecretary and the political appointees who manage the Air Force pretty much, well, for sure weekly and often daily, and help ensure that his and her intent are reflected and understood across the staff. And to the extent that there's inconsistencies or confusion on a topic or direction from senior leadership, I manage the staff meetings and run and bring different offices and organizations together to make sure that we have a unified message or that everyone's position is reflected to enable informed decision-making. So I would say if I had a bumper sticker for the job, it would be to enable informed decision-making, make sure the secretary and the chiefs have all the information that they need from their staff to make the best decisions. And it sounds like over the years that you and the department now of the Air Force have honed the way that uniforms and civilians interoperate and interact in a way that everyone does feel like they're pulling on the same team here. Is that a fair way to put it? That's right. I actually feel very lucky because I think of, you know, all services have their strengths and weaknesses. And one of the strengths of the Department of the Air Force is collaboration. And we are very much a valued member of the team as civilians, as well as uniformed. So you won't hear in the department like, oh, that's the uniformed position. We very much collaborate, try to make sure that we reflect the best military advice of our uniform members, and then ultimately, you know, civilian control of the military concept, and that we reflect reflect those positions to the secretary to then make an informed decision. So I do feel lucky and feel very much part of the team, more so, I think, than probably any of the other services. That's one of our strengths. 
We are speaking with Jennifer Miller. She's director of staff at Department of Air Force Headquarters and a recent Presidential Rank Award recipient. And why do you think you got a Presidential Rank Award? So in my last job, I had a pretty unique opportunity to address one of the biggest challenges that we had. We had a big portfolio, and I was the acting assistant secretary for, it's a long title, but Installations, Environment, and Energy. And one of the pieces of that was we decide for the secretary, we tee up for secretary decision where new missions go. So every time we have a new airframe or weapon system or, you know, any kind of cyber mission, anything, we put a package together to decide which installation should this go to, which state. And there's obviously a lot of interest both by military members and then also Congress because it usually involves a lot of military construction and potential new jobs. One of the things that we'd heard is that there's places that we have higher retention rates and lower retention rates across the United States, depending on schools and spouse job employment opportunities. And we would hear from people, hey, I know if I go to this location, I'm not going to be able to bring my family because they just don't have the educational opportunities my family needs, or my spouse won't be able to practice dentistry right away because of licensure requirements. So we were hearing these kind of things. So we said, well, let's tackle this. Do we have any authoritative source on this? So one of the neatest things that I got to initially brainstorm and then put together the program for it and eventually implement it and defend it to the Hill, to Congress, was this initiative we called Supportive Military Families. So we discovered that two of the top three retention issues for families now were spouse licensure and reciprocity, in other words, the ability for a spouse to get a job, and the quality of education, because there's parts of the country folks go to and just don't feel like their kids have the same opportunities that they might, say, in Northern Virginia. So we started measuring it. It took us a long time to implement it. We wanted to make sure we had authoritative sources, but then we started measuring and publishing across the U.S. for every single military installation how the school quality was based on a number of things, mostly growth model based on national testing, and then also what were the licensure requirements for military spouses? Did they have to wait two to three years to be able to practice in their field based on the top 10 fields? So once we started measuring this and it resulted in real impacts to whether someone got a new mission, we saw a lot of changes. So that's one of the most exciting pieces that I was able to work on is, you know, over 100 improvements on public education and 75 state law passages that really impacted spouse licensure and reciprocity. So that's one of the neatest pieces that I was able to work at in my, gosh, now 18 years of the Air Force is something that you really knew would drive beneficial changes that would impact the military family. So I'm very proud of that work. And my team took it on, even though it didn't really necessarily fall in our portfolio. And the fact that everywhere we go to all the communities, they want to talk to us about it and show us what they've done to improve the quality of education and make sure that military spouses can start practicing in their field right away. Plus, you've got some really important metrics that you can point to for tangible results in this effort. That's right. And we knew that in any time you have a ranking list, the communities that did not rank as well would be very sensitive to making sure that we had the proper data that we're measuring fairly, that it was an apples-to-apples comparison. So it did take us, it was a couple years of effort to dig into the methodology and make sure we had these good sources socialize it with all the experts in those fields, and then socialize it with the Hill. And eventually, we rolled this out. And so now, every time we're deciding where a new mission goes, the secretary is considering those factors. And the other nice thing is, as families are ranking where they would like to be stationed, they have access. It's on a publicly available website. If you know you just Google supportive military families, and it'll show every installation and what their strengths and weaknesses are for both the spouse employment and for schools. 
so that I think helps for military family decision making as well. Right. So this might fall under the category of take care of the Air Force people, and then they'll take care of the Air Force. People are our number one asset, and I firmly believe that, civilians and military. So I think that recruiting quality people and then retaining them, there's nothing more important than we do. And, you know, you ask about the rank award. That's one of the other things that I really love doing is a lot of the mentorship that I've been able to do. And some of it has been focused through the STEM programs or executive women in government, or I speak to women's leadership groups. And I've loved that work as well because I've sat on a lot of hiring panels. My answer is always, yes, I'm happy to do that because really taking care of our people and recruiting and retaining people is more important than any mission or program that I can push forward. And your deep background is legal, correct? Right. So I'm an attorney by background, and that's how I made my way to the Air Force. actually started because I was doing finance and big commercial real estate projects. I didn't know the Air Force even did that, but we have an $8 billion privatized housing program. So our team down in San Antonio stood up a bunch of experts from large law firms, and I eventually became chief counsel of that. And I enjoyed the legal role, but then once I got a taste of being able to run programs instead of support them and manage programs, I was hooked. I've made a decision to stay on the program side and really be able to help shape, own, and run a program from start to finish. And don't get me wrong, I love the lawyers. I I call myself a recovering lawyer, and they're integral to the team. But I really enjoy owning a program and being able to see it through to fruition. And being so close to where the power is and the formation of policies, plans, short-term and long-term, as you are in the Pentagon, what's it like for a senior executive when you read everything said in the public and published in the public about an organization like the Air Force, everybody's an expert and the planes are too old or they can't do this right, they can't do that right, whatever the case might be, they can't buy things properly. How do you deal with that and knowing what you do know on the inside, at least the reasons behind what people might be saying, even if they don't know the reasons? So I'm sympathetic to the view that anyone has about, you know, bureaucracy and especially for a large organization like the Department of the Air Force and Department of Defense. We're an easy target for why do things take so long? Why can't you, as you just said, modernize your fleet faster? But I also am a huge believer, and I'll talk to anyone who will listen about civilian control of the military, meaning Congress as well, you know, and their proper right to oversee and direct through the budget what we do and to ask the questions. And we have to be able to explain and be accountable. Now, the only thing that drives me a little crazy, as you mentioned, was when people will say things like good enough for government work. And I will always tell them, I would welcome you any day at the Pentagon to see how hard the people here work. I can't speak for anyone in the federal government, but I can tell you my colleagues are so committed. And the people who come and are political appointees, a lot of folks don't know this, but the pay for a political appointee is much lower than most people would think. In fact, I've never met one who did not take a significant pay cut to come and be a civil servant for the government. So these are well-intended, hardworking individuals who really are committed. And of my 18-year career and then also 24 years as an Army reservist, the sole reason that I have stayed in federal employment is because of the quality of the people that I get to work with and a huge commitment to mission, too. Sure. And a final question. Did you get to go see that bomber unveiling? I did not, but a lot of my colleagues did, and I got to help work on the basing actions for it. And, you know, it's so neat for all of the folks who've been able to work on programs. And and the bomber's the most recent, but, you know, as we've rolled out fighters before, just how cool for the folks who have worked on the development and the acquisition and get to be the maintainers on it to actually get to see it come to fruition. 
I would have loved to. I have to stay in the office a little more in my current job and make sure things are running here. But I know our leadership team went out, and I've heard it was a great event. Yeah, I guess you might have been able to see the back end of it, which they didn't show the public because it's secret. Do you ever get the offer to go in a fighter plane so they could make you throw up? <laughs> I've been able to be outside of them, never up in one. I understand you have to do the medical screening and maybe someday, but then I also heard that there's maintainers who will work on these aircraft for 20 years and as their final retirement, you know, perhaps they get to go up in one. So given the cost associated with it, I'll, I'll let the people who get to work on it every day be the ones who go and I will cheer them on from the ground <laughs> and, and stick to my roller coasters instead. Fair enough. Jennifer Miller is Director of Staff at Air Force Headquarters and a recent Presidential Rank Award recipient, one of a series of interviews with Rank Awardees we'll be bringing you this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tomorrow, the senior procurement executive at the GSA who wears several hats. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, why contractors need to focus on the brass tacks. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The next nine months will prove crucial ones for federal contractors. Lots of acquisition regulations, cooking, expansion of Buy American, and more White House emphasis on small disadvantaged business. For where it's all headed, we turn to federal sales and marketing consultant, Larry Allen. And your advice now is for people to concentrate on the basics, basically closing business and sticking to the knitting. Tell us what's driving that idea. Tom, what's driving that idea is that there's been a lot of emphasis over the last few years about the fourth quarter in the federal market. And while the fourth quarter is certainly important, there is business that gets done now, Tom. And I think sometimes that gets ignored. We've seen a lot of contracts let earlier this year, even already. And by now, all agencies should have their dollar figures for the remainder of the fiscal year. In fact, I'm telling companies, if they talk to a client who says that they haven't gotten their number yet from OMB, I think that's probably more of an excuse than a reason because everybody should have their budgets by now. And you should be going out and trying to close business today as well as preparing for the fourth quarter. Right. It's fair to say the government agency you're dealing with doesn't want to save the money because otherwise, you know what happens then. So why would an agency say, well, we don't have our budgets yet? Because it does take Treasury a couple of weeks after the appropriations bills are passed to get the funds loaded. I mean, there's some mechanics there, but we're a month past that now. And that's why I'm telling companies that everybody should have their number. I usually think it takes four to six weeks before each individual office gets its money after Congress passes an appropriations bill. Given the timing this year, Tom, it was probably an extra week to 10 days because we had Christmas and New Year's in that time frame. But certainly people should have their money. We still definitely find federal agencies that will tell specific contractors, you know, we really don't have the funds for that yet. And what they're really saying is we're not going to be spending money on that right now. 
That should be a signal to contractors that maybe time to move on, find another prospect, a better opportunity that they can focus on closing business in the near term. You don't want to go back and hook your wagon to a lot of excuses. You need to go out and find actual business. And by the way, in looking at what agencies are planning in the IT area, the Exhibit 53s have gone away, haven't they? Right. You know, this was something that for years and years, federal contractors had studied religiously to suss through IT opportunities. Now with the ubiquity of IT, changing budget rules, it's not necessarily as discreet as it once was, Tom. But if you're an IT contractor, particularly an experienced company, you can know where to hunt to find those opportunities, even if they're not exactly where they used to be. But that, I think, really speaks to the evolution of the use of technology in pretty much every aspect of government. It's no longer just its own thing. All right. And then there is the Buy America expansion that the president mentioned in the recent State of the Union speech, and it has to do with iron and steel or construction-type materials, but you're saying don't believe for a minute that's all it's going to be confined to. Well, I think what we're really talking about here, Tom, is there's going to be a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion in the federal arena about where and how different Buy America rules are to be applied. And there are a couple of different rules. There's the Buy American Act that has provisions for both construction and non-construction goods, There's the Buy America Act, which is a little bit more narrowly defined to specific types of money. And then there's the Trade Agreements Act, which the president really didn't mention in his State of the Union. And that caught the attention of lots of people who follow government acquisition, not just myself, but some of my colleagues, because it's so frequent that the two acts, Trade Agreements Act and Buy American Act, are linked together that I think there's a lot of confusion, certainly in the political class, Tom, and that can lead to policies that are confusing to people in government. And what I'm telling contractors is, hey, contractors, industry, this is your time to be able to get educated on what the differences are between the Buy American Act and the Trade Agreements Act, when each act applies, and what it says, so that You can help your customer get through this and get to a better acquisition. And you can also, as a company, save yourself from having to sign up for an extra rule that you might not have to follow in a specific circumstance. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And as they say in showbiz, wait, there's more. Beyond Buy America, (laughs) there is this new small disadvantaged business executive order and that could make it tougher for every other kind of small business. I really think it could, and I'm not sure that that's the intention, but we've seen policies over the years, whether they're related to acquisition or something else, that do have unintended consequences. We know that when the Biden administration came into power, one of the first things they did was say, we're going to significantly increase the amount of prime contract dollars that go to small disadvantaged businesses. Well, the executive order that you allude to is more recent action by President Biden that essentially told OMB to come up with a plan to meet that goal a year earlier. So you're going to increase by 50% the amount of contract dollars that go to small disadvantaged businesses. Originally, it was going to be over, I think, five years, or now it's going to be over four years. And in the meantime, 
I think if you're not a small disadvantaged business, but some other type of small business in the government market, you ought to be wondering what this means for your business. And the simple fact is that the government has not increased its overall 23% small business contracting goal. And while some government agencies exceed that goal, they typically don't exceed it by more than one or two percentage points, sometimes less than that. So the amount of business that goes to small businesses might grow slightly, but it's not growing exponentially. So if you have one particular part of the small business world that is eating more of essentially the same sized pie, that tells you that there's going to be less pie for the rest of the small businesses to eat. And I think that could be a a real challenge. So if you're a woman-owned small business, a service-disabled veteran-owned, or a hub-zone business, just to name three, I think that this is a development that you need to be watching very carefully in terms of how it could impact contracts that you thought were coming to you. Right. And this all happens as the government, especially the Defense Department, is looking at the shrinkage in the number of small businesses doing business with the department. That's right. Thousands of small businesses, Tom, have left the government market, and most of those have left doing business with the Department of Defense. While we see new market entries that come in, what we really see is that small businesses that are able to commit the resources that are ironically large small businesses that can abide by the government's rules and regulations, or that maybe are so small that they have those brand new technologies that are in development where there are specialized programs that accommodate those types of companies. But if you're a general small business selling commercial items to the government and you don't have an extra socioeconomic designation beyond being a small business, I think this could be a very tough time for you. It's not just me. Uh, I'm hearing from companies that I know who have that type of situation, and they feel like they're being squeezed out from both ends, from the larger businesses, who are, of course, obviously very capable of doing lots of things in the market, but also these other businesses that may have a more favored, at least in the current marketplace, socioeconomic designation, and that poses a real challenge. And for them, they're like, well, I'm either going to stay in this market or I'm going to have to leave entirely if I want my business to thrive. All right. Well, we want people to stay in the federal market. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Homeland Security researchers see facial recognition systems making progress on accuracy and privacy. The DHS Science and Technology Directorate unveiled findings from its 2022 Biometrics Technology Rally this month. 
The results hold implications for agencies like Transportation Security Administration and others that are looking into expanding use of biometrics. For the latest, here's Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And tell us more about the testing and the results from the rally. Yeah, so this was 11 days of testing up at the Maryland Test Facility in Upper Marlboro. It evaluated 40 facial recognition configurations in an airport-like environment where you'd have folks going through checkpoints and having to, of course, identify themselves before they were screened. And one of the interesting things this looked at was group facial recognition. So not just one person going through, but groups of two or four. Uh, And so you had 40 different configurations. That includes four face acquisition systems, as they called it, essentially camera systems that would acquire the images of the faces, and then 10 face matching algorithms. And part of the condition of uh, companies participating in these rallies is that DHS will not identify them um, just so that they can sort of keep that on on close hold if they don't want to be identified. But you had 14 companies here uh, participating. And you had a threshold of identifying at least 95% of users in groups of two or four. The best combination could identify 97% of people in groups of two or four in less than two seconds per individual. So pretty promising results. Arun Vermori is lead of the DHS S&T Biometric and Identity Technology Center. For many years, we've been seeing this as a one-person-at-a-time problem. We were able to kind of basically show that that assumption that we had to process people one at a time may not really hold, that we can at least go up to groups of two and four without losing any efficiency and without really seeing a major drop in, in matching performance. Yeah, that makes sense. People do often travel in pairs. Exactly. And uh, what about the privacy factor in the tests? That's you know comes up second once they know they can recognize something. Exactly. Yeah, this was actually the first time that in these rallies, which they've been hosting for five years now, that they had a privacy factor as, as a factor in these tests. And what they're essentially telling the vendors was make sure your camera systems don't capture people who aren't in the designated areas for facial recognition. And they set up this facility, which looks like a medium-sized warehouse, outfitted it like an airport screening. And they had a center section where you'd have folks in biometrics processing. And then right next to them, lanes where people would be going through regular processing. And essentially, these cameras were, these vendors were told, don't capture the faces of people who are right next door in those lanes for regular processing. And for the most part, the tested systems met those privacy requirements by only capturing individuals standing in those designated areas. Here's Vermuri again. Some of the things that we think we've been able to address here is you can actually configure these things to be very selective and not take photos of everything you see. So you're not getting the guy in the background. You're not getting Bob Marley on your T-shirt. You're not getting the talking head on the TV screen behind the person. So I think from the privacy side, we've seen that if you specify it, industry can come up with solutions to help address or minimize that problem. And what about systems and their responses to different racial demographics or just different types of people? Yeah, equitability was another big factor in these tests, essentially do these work uniformly across different races and genders. Uh, There have, of course, been tests that have found disparities in performance across commercial facial recognition systems and some algorithms, although they are getting more accurate, some are. These tests involved 575 test volunteers representing 54 countries, so they really tried to choose a diverse round of people that would participate in the tests, and they actually measured skin tone using a dermatological instrument that's typically used to kind of measure what kind of 
shades of makeup someone should use. Um, and, and they found that cameras and image quality were really, really the main sources of error in face matching rather than the algorithms themselves. 36 out of the 40 system configurations performed well when there weren't any issues with the images that were taken. Some camera systems struggled with lighter skin tones and some struggled with very dark skin tones as well. Yevgeny Sorotin was the principal investigator for the 2022 rally. Here's what he said about that. Skin tone determines the net reflectiveness of your skin, determines how many photons get reflected back into the camera, and fundamentally this is a physics problem. So these cameras can sometimes not be configured properly to take good images regardless of skin tone, and in some cases it results in overexposure, in some cases that results in underexposure. And this result shows that you know these cameras do need to be configured to make sure that they take quality pictures of everyone. Yeah, he's expressing a problem that Ansel Adams pointed out 60 years ago, and that is people of all colors have the same skin reflectance, but the color of the skin underneath varies. And so how do you get a full-bodied look to a photograph, taking account for the fact that the sensitivity meters and so forth might see things differently. They've struggled through that in the silver photography days and I guess still in the electronic days. But regardless, these results matter to the TSAs and CBPs and everybody else trying to use this technology. Exactly. This type of uh, group processing facial recognition has obvious applications to ports of entry. Uh, The researchers that we've heard from said the same. TSA is already piloting the use of facial recognition at 16 major airports. They're doing it on an individual basis, not in group settings at this point. And, uh, you know, a 2022 report from the Homeland Security Advisory Council's Customer Experience Subcommittee recommended DHS continue exploring biometrics for places like airports. Uh, Dan Daly is deputy director of the Information Assurance and Cybersecurity Division at TSA. He spoke at the Digital Transformation Summit about how TSA is looking at augmenting its staffing with technologies. How we can really enable their activities through technology, I think, is a primary mission space for our administrator at the moment. So there's a lot of efforts underway to really look at how we can create some efficiencies in what we're doing at the checkpoint so that you don't have to see 100 TSOs standing there. Maybe we can reduce that number down by a factor of 20%, 30%, 40%. No matter how good this technology gets, though, the skepticism never seems to flee from it, does it? There's still a lot of skepticism and and, uh, criticism of facial recognition. Uh, Recently, some Democrats in the Senate called on TSA to halt its facial recognition pilots. Um, They referenced the aforementioned uh, issues around how these technologies might treat different demographics differently or or they might be applied differently. Civil liberties issues associated just with capturing facial recognition and then just concerns generally around technology, technological surveillance. Uh, You know, Vermurray says the tests show facial recognition systems can be configured to meet certain parameters, but they should be applied in each case carefully and thoughtfully. There are technologies that will work well and work equitably and hit that 95% performance uh, threshold. However, as you saw, we also see some technologies that that fall below that for some demographic groups. So while there are available solutions that can do that today, we can't just take it at face value that all technologies are available today. This kind of highlights the importance of testing and evaluating for specific use cases with diverse volunteers to make sure that we actually are picking the right technologies for specific applications. 
All right, Justin, what's next for the Biometric Identity and Technology Center? Yeah, they're now preparing to launch a remote identity validation technology demonstration. Uh, Essentially, they're looking at how different systems could identify a person remotely using a picture of their ID that they take on their phone. And this obviously holds implications for, you know, public benefits programs and and whether folks can apply online rather than going into their local, you know, Social Security Administration office. So that's what they're going to be working on here in 2023. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Transportation Department maps out its next five years of research. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.